welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We'll open our Bibles to Haggai. We're in chapter 1, uh, where I'm going to read uh, verses 2 to 11. Uh, I've titled this message, The Scene of Desolation. Desolation is what we are observing according to Haggai. Uh, the Hebrew term means laid waste or left uninhabitable, left in ruins. The New Testament Greek equivalent to that desolation is eremosis, and additionally, it implies a place to be avoided uh, because it has been deemed uninhabitable. It is a desolation. During our scripture reading earlier, destroyed, desolate, in ruins, uninhabitable, are terms that Jeremiah used to describe Jerusalem prophetically ahead of time, uh, years before it was conquered by the Babylonians. Uh, Jeremiah supplied God's warning that a desolation would come. And several decades later, several decades after it did, uh, a scene of desolation is how Daniel described the present condition of Jerusalem and the Lord's sanctuary while the Jews remained in exile. And our passage today uh, Haggai says that desolation persists even long after the Jews repopulated the promised land. In Haggai chapter 1, the Lord's temple is desolate. Though a foundation was laid 16 years earlier, uh, the walls remained piled in ruins. Uh, the location, therefore, uh, continued to be a place avoided because the Lord's house was clearly, it's uninhabitable. And therefore, under the provisions of the Old Covenant, their Lord Yahweh, our Lord Yahweh, He's clearly not dwelling in their midst. We'll discover today that the attitude of the people is this. Uh, they aren't all that concerned about it. The temple of the Lord is not being built because the people are consumed with other priorities. And we're going to see what types of priorities in just a few minutes. But before I read Haggai uh, and expose the scene, uh, which all the prophets declare is a desolation. They describe it as a desolation. Here's one more little juicy detail for you prophecy buffs. You're out there. I know you are. Israel's formally adopted Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it uses the identical term, Eremosis, to describe Jerusalem's scene uh, that scene in the past, as Jesus uses to describe Jerusalem in the future. Why is that important? 
Well, it's because 600 years after Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt, Jesus prophesies Jerusalem and the temple will again become a desolation. At the conclusion of Matthew 23, Jesus tells Israel, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, eremosis, uninhabitable. And the very next scene in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus and his disciples are headed to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus gives them what prediction concerning the temple? Jesus says, do you not see all of these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Uh, Jesus says this scene, it will again become a desolation just as it had been centuries earlier. And the New Testament writers attribute to Jesus' lips uh, that same term for desolation, eremosis as the Septuagint uses for this earlier dissolution described by Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Haggai. You're thinking, well, why would I care? Why would I care? What does it matter? Well, when Jesus predicts Jerusalem's future desolation, the Holy Spirit employs the same term, eremosis, that the Jews had been using for centuries to describe what had happened to the temple in 586 B.C. The Jews were carried into Babylon. The temple was left desolate. And therefore, by the gospel writer's choice of terms, Jesus implies this future desolation will repeat the same pattern. You follow me? Jerusalem will, Jerusalem will again be left in ruins, and the desolation of the temple means it will be physically destroyed and left uninhabitable. To the Hebrews, the term desolation uh, historically suggested to them, not one stone will be left upon another. And uh, this was fulfilled in 70 AD in perfect fulfillment of Jesus' prediction. Uh, this time the Romans came. And they besieged Jerusalem again. The temple was made desolate and the Jews were carried off into all the nations. That is in perfect fulfillment of Luke chapter 21 and 24. So when Jesus is talking to the crowds and to his disciples, say, get ready. It's going to happen again. Since in our passage, Haggai twice describes the temple as a desolation, uh, it's very important to draw attention to the parallel that Jesus eventually will make. If you're not intrigued with the end time prophecies, if it doesn't matter uh, to you, the eschatology, don't worry about what I just said about the translations, uh, about the temple being left in desolation. It's, it's not essential uh, for, for our um, interpretation today uh, of Haggai. So as... Well, as Taylor Swift would say, just shake it off. <laughs> shake it off, right? In Haggai chapter 1 and verse 2, Haggai provides a description of the temple of God and offers his interpretation of what it means for a temple to be left in desolation. It is uninhabitable because the people have not taken any initiative to remedy the situation. 
In verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands." Well, as I said moments ago, this portrays a scene of desolation, agree all of the prophets. To the Hebrews, the, the term means a condition where God's temple lies in ruins. It's, it's uninhabitable. That's how Jesus defines it as well. Uh, it happened twice in history, as I said. Uh, first time, 586 B.C., second time, 70 A.D., after Christ was crucified once for all sins. There no longer a need, as I've stated in the past, for any other, uh, any other sacrifices. So God employed the armies of Rome to make an end to all the sacrifices at the temple. There is no alternative to the cross. There is no other way. Haggai is obviously describing the first scene of desolation. About 520 B.C., uh, the temple still lies in ruins. Even though, it lies in ruins even though, through the prophesying of Daniel, God had told Israel, Jerusalem and the temple must be rebuilt. You'll find that in Daniel 9, verses 25 and 26. The prophet Jeremiah also declared in chapters 30 and 33, even on its own ruins, Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt. In Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus, he was a king of Persia. He declared in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, it is time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And then Cyrus even made provisions. He gave provisions for the building 
and the restoration of the temple. So the command that the Lord had made was crystal clear. Couldn't get any clearer. But what did the Jews in the land say? Well, in verse 2 they say, uh-uh, it's not time. The Lord of hosts answers for them, saying, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Notice that Yahweh doesn't refer to them as my people. He calls them this people. Since God's command to build was already given, they had become a disobedient people. Why didn't they want to build? Well, there is a combination of reasons, uh, three that I can point out, uh, maybe four by next week. Uh, but we are going to discover in the narrative that the root cause of delay is that they had a fundamental heart problem. They had a heart problem. The phrase repeated in verses 5 and 7 that says, Consider your ways. It actually implies, look inside your heart. The English word that we use, consider, uh, it is a translation of two Hebrew words uh, that point to the heart and suggest you better examine your motives. Look inside. Consider. While examining the phrase, consider your ways. So not just the heart, consider. Now he says, your ways. Your ways suggest the practical course of behaviors that come as a result of your corrupted heart. Essentially, the prophet is saying, the Lord is saying through the prophet, look inside your heart and notice what it is causing you to do. You're being disobedient. You are not obeying my clear commands. Your heart is what's causing you to act in a way contrary to what the Lord has spoken. Uh, so ex essentially, they're experiencing heart failure. They don't build God's temple because, well, they don't have a heart for God. Uh-oh. Some of the theological resource, uh, resources that I have consulted uh, suspect the implied undertone in God's complaint against them, the undertone in God's complaint against Israel, accuses the people of not building the Lord's house because they don't actually want God dwelling too near. They didn't want God in the same zip code. That'd be too close. Kind of like things the way they are. In fact, the connotation of the verse may well be, your heart really doesn't want to draw close to me. They might have liked the thought of living how they wanted while keeping God at a distance. 
Because if you focus your efforts on building the temple of God, what are you essentially saying to him? You're inviting him back into your life. Last week, God said to the same people, uh, do you remember what in the opening of Zechariah? He said, return to me, that I might return to you. Boy, is that passage relevant today? There are all sorts of people who profess Christianity, who, who like to keep the body of Christ where, where God dwells, inside his church. I like to keep him at a safe distance. That's a fact. God dwells here because he dwells in us. And a coming together at his temple or as his temple is a drawing near to God. But some will say, you know, well, I don't, I don't know if that going to church. Yeah, that, that might be a good idea. But it's not a good time. Bad timing. Notice they said, it's not the time. God says, it's the time. But their hearts conclude, you know, I've got more important things to finish first. I've got other things to build. I've got dreams. I've got desires. I've set goals. Oh, yeah? Well, I've got verse 4. And there the Lord asks this. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house of mine lies desolate? Yikes. The emphasis in this verse is the word you. God says, well, life has been all about you. In fact, the phrase, you yourselves, it's literally a repeat of the same word in the Hebrew, you. The original Hebrew says, you, you. The Hebrew language doesn't use modifiers, so what they would do is repeat the same word in order to add emphasis. You noticed in a song earlier, uh, reminiscent of Isaiah, uh, the song said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? That's how the Hebrew adds emphasis, because they don't have uh, terms for, he's very, very, very holy. They say, he's holy, holy, holy. That's how the Hebrew works for emphasis. <laughs> so God is really asking the question in verse 4 like this. Is it time for you, you, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Consider your ways. They had determined it was, well, an inconvenient time to build the Lord's house. Oh, but when it came to focusing on their own houses, oh, they had, they'd concluded that. Oh, yeah, baby, it's time. Talk about a punch square in the gut. Why? Because, because the physical evidence 
is surrounding them. Everyone within earshot of Haggai is forced to respond to God's accusation by confessing this. Yeah, actually, my house is looking pretty good. I've got three televisions, one fridge in the house, another on the patio. I'm widening the garage again. I got central air. Hmm. Washing machine, toilet for every individual in the house. I've even got hot running water. I'll prove it to you. Alexa, turn on the hot water and start the coffee maker. Right? Has all of the time that we have saved through modern conveniences returned our focus to the building of God's temple? Or has it diverted our focus to our own house? This is the question that God is asking. He's not condemning each of them for having their own house, but rather that is the priority that their hearts are focused on. God's accusation is repeated and amplified in verse 9 when God says, My house lies desolate while each of you runs, really scurries to his own house. John Calvin, he's got a good commentary on Haggai. Uh, He offers some insight to this passage by saying, quote, The prophet here reminds the Jews that they were slow and slothful in the work of building the temple, but they hastened to their private houses. God then reproves here their absorption in building their own houses so that they had no leisure to build the temple. They they just stayed busy at home. The observation of R.C. Sproul is more succinct. He writes, quote, The focus of their lives is on building their own personal fortunes and families rather than building God's kingdom. Boy, will Haggai preach today? Sure will. Some believe the reference in verse 4 to their dwelling in paneled houses suggests some were remodeling or elaborately decorating their homes. That Hebrew word there, uh, paneled, it can also be translated wainscoting. It's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the elaborate decor that was in Solomon's temple. Other scholars and linguists propose that the same word, paneling, could merely refer to roofing panels. Whether the term refers to decorations or roofing, I don't know. But the argument remains the same. The Lord says, Well, I've noticed that your houses are nicely covered. Therefore, Haggai Haggai's listening audience obviously, therefore, had the time. They clearly had the resources to build. 
but they simply don't want to apply their time and their resources to the Lord's temple. God's house remains desolate, and therefore God's house remains uninhabited by him. Boy, it's a crisis situation in ancient Israel. Keeping our focus on building, our focus on building is crucial. It's very important. Have you ever wondered why so many churches sit empty? You ever visited a church and said to yourself, boy, this place is dead. It's like spiritually desolate or something. That can happen when too few people have a heart to commit their time and their resources to building. Consider your ways, says the Lord. We ought to build the house that God indwells. Busy about building the house where God dwells. Follow me? There was a gentleman in South Texas, rancher, um, I believe it was down by San Marcos, the hell, uh, the hill country, if you're familiar with it. And his rancher bought a large acreage, several thousand acres. And being the rancher that he was, he traveled around the fence line, the perimeter, to make sure that if he lets his cows out there, it's all going to uh, hold up until he can get more repairs done. And as he's traveling around uh, on the far side of his property, he found that there was a country church adjacent to his property. And it was Sunday morning. And so he got off his horse and tied it up and walked in with the crowd. Uh, of course, he was a mess. He, holy jeans and boots were dirty and just got off the range. So um, after the service, the pastor who greeted him going out, he said, he said uh, you know, before you come back next week, I think you ought to pray to the Lord and ask him what you would wear in this church. He went home, came back the next week. He walked in, same tattered jeans, same boots, sat through the service. At the end of the service, the pastor met him again. He said, I thought I told you to go home and ask the Lord in prayer what he might have you wear at this church. And the rancher said, I did. And God said, I don't know, I ain't never been to that church. <laughs> I'll save that one, play it again another five years. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul supplies this parallel speaking to the community of redeemed souls in Corinth. And he says, you are God's building. You are God's temple. And I'll flesh this out a little more as we get deeper into Haggai. But consider your ways. Do you have a heart for what God is building? Or are our hearts consumed with whatever we are building. I'm 
might be a good opportunity now to head off some misunderstanding in this passage, potential misunderstanding. It's not at all uncommon for pastors to uh, announce to the congregation a building project, only to propose, you know, you should be ashamed of what you have, Uh, you better prepare to give it all up for God uh, so that this church can build a new grand sanctuary. Passages like these are used, manipulated to promote expensive building projects As the pastor will suggest that uh, we have a little faith, just have a little faith. Uh, First we build it, and then they'll come. And it's claimed that God needs from you your money in order to build the house of God. I'd like to propose from this passage that what God really wants in order to build is your heart. And I would suggest that in order to begin building, even today, as early as today, uh, you don't have to move out of the comforts of your home. You don't have to go home and say, Alexa, put it up for sale. Because that which we are building today is not a temple made of wood and stone. Instead, we Christians commit our hearts to building a spiritual temple. So keep your bathrooms. Keep the extra fridge. You may need it. Enjoy the house that the Lord has given you. It's the fruit of your labor. But recommit your hearts to God, and I will as well. Support and uphold public worship. Don't forsake our assembling together. Use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you to provide a return to Christ in His service. Let us devote ourselves to sharing the gospel with urgency and with passion. Let's begin by returning To God, the love that He has first shown us. Folks, start building today. It financially costs you nothing. But we must reconsider that to Christ, the spiritual temple that He builds, oh, it cost Him everything. And Jesus was glad to suffer and die to pay for its construction. As he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, Jesus did so that we might die to sin and that we might live for righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. And in around 50 AD, uh, our Lord's brother James repeats the cry that was heard through Zechariah centuries earlier. James writes this, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. I have an insightful, another insightful quote from John Calvin about building Christ's spiritual temple. It rings as true today as it did 500 years ago. 
when Calvin first wrote it. Uh, in this, he alludes to, well, some of the building materials, some of the construction materials of the temple, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gospel that Christ's blood has been shed for our sins, that he died, that he has risen again, and the spiritual rebirth and regeneration that comes through faith, through the word of God that is preached. And in, comment, in comments about this very passage, Calvin writes this, quote, But we may hence also see how kindly God has provided for his church. For his purpose was that this reproof, meaning of Israel, should continue and endure. That he might at this day stimulate us and excite our fear as well as our shame. For we also thus grow frigid in the promoting uh, in promoting the worship of God, uh, whenever we are led to seek only our own advantages. We may also add that as God's temple is spiritual, our fault is the more atrocious when we become thus slothful, since God does not ask us to collect either wood or stones or cement, but to build a celestial temple in which he may be truly worshipped. When, therefore, we become thus indifferent, says Calvin, as that people uh, were thus severely reproved, doubtless our sloth is much more detestable. We now see that the prophet not only spoke to men of his age, but was also destined through God's wonderful purpose to be a preacher to us, so that his doctrine sounds at this day in our ears, and reproves our lethargy and ungrateful indifference for the building of the temple is deferred whenever we become devoted to ourselves and regard only what is advantage to us. God did not rebuke Israel because they had homes. Or because they enjoyed homes. It's because they did not enjoy building his. It's God's desire to dwell amongst his people. And for this reason, we cannot maintain so much distance from him that we will never be bothered with his work. Next week... We're going to finish this passage. And one reason that the temple lay desolate was that they're, well, they had a heart problem. They didn't want God drawing any nearer. Secondly, they were distracted by improving their own lot. Well, next Sunday, we are going to see that they were working really hard, but finding no satisfaction in other things. Haggai is going to help them correct that and us as well. It put them in harm's way. No matter how hard they would work, it remained impossible to prosper apart from God. And he says, seek that I be glorified first. Make sure that happens. 
and then you will be satisfied with all your needs. That's going to be our lesson next week. As we bow our heads to pray, I'm going to read our closing prayer again. I apologize, but from John Calvin. Just had some great notes on this. This is a prayer that he offers for this passage. Let's bow our heads and pray. Grant, Almighty God, that as we must carry on a warfare in this world, and as it is thy will to try us with many contests, O grant that we may never faint, however extreme may be the trials with which we shall have to endure. And as thou hast favored us with so great an honor as to make us the framers and builders of thy spiritual temple, may every one of us present and consecrate, consecrate himself wholly to thee. And inasmuch as each of us has received some peculiar gift, may we strive to employ it in building this temple so that thou mayest be worshipped among us perpetually and especially may each of us offer himself wholly as a spiritual sacrifice to thee until we shall at length be renewed in thine image and be received into a full participation of that glory which has been attained for us by the blood of of thy only begotten Son. Amen.